Well, this morning we come back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 11 to 18 of Hebrews 10 are our text for this morning, if you would turn there. And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, please turn to page 1203. 1203 is where you'll find our text from Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11. And as we began looking at this text... Two weeks ago, we introduced this section of Scripture with the concept of superlatives. That is, those, those words which express greatness or, or maximum impact. We talk about instead of better, best, in, instead of uh, more, most. And we talk about words like amazing and and glorious, and, and even the word awesome, which as I mentioned is a word that for me, I attempt to try to refrain from using except for the person of God, for he alone is awesome. The illustration is most appropriate because this is such an amazing text. These verses are in many ways the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews. This, this is the top of the book. We've been moving for many weeks and months through this book of Hebrews, and we now come to, in verses 11 to 18, a climax to this book. These positive superlatives from the first verses then transition now to negative superlatives in the last verses of our text. So positively, we again might think of those words like amazing, astonishing, incredible, fabulous, or marvelous. Or one of the superlatives that best describes, again, the subject of our text, and Hebrews, who is, of course, Christ Jesus, and that superlative, awesome, as only Jesus is awesome, and Jesus is God, who God alone, in Father, Son, and Spirit, are awesome. The negative superlatives are, are, are not those associated with something bad. So don't be confused about that, but rather with the idea of removal as opposed to something that is, is bad. So when we think of negative superlatives, we think of words like abolish or eradicate or terminate, a, a maximum extension of that removal, if you will, but at the same time, a, a negative component. We could consider other words like destroy, abolish, obliterate, annihilate. These are all negative superlatives. And whether negative or positive, all of these convey a sense of power and might. That is most appropriately placed in this position in Hebrews because of the fact that this is the pinnacle of that book. And this is just the sense that our text and our title indicate. And I've titled this series of our messages, The Totally Awesome Action. The Totally Awesome Action. And we could call this part two, as we did endeavor into this two weeks back. Let's take a look at our verses. Follow along as I read, if you would. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... 
He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The totally awesome action. The text covers the sixth and final contrast in the book of Hebrews. Each previous contrast has built one upon another. There's been an ever-escalating importance and a connectivity that we can't miss in these. They're not only built logically, but they also increase in importance. The contrast of ministries was our first comparison. And the obvious superiority of Jesus' heavenly ministry versus the earthly ministry of the high priest was self-evident in how superior the heavenly was to the earthly. But there was a problem. There was an intangible element to that heavenly ministry. We don't see heaven. I don't get it. So I appreciate that and I appreciate it's superior, but I'm still kind of connected down here. Keep in mind as our author writes to the Jewish audience of the Hebrews in Rome that these are those who for thousands of years have been connected to the Old Testament sacrificial system whose focus and high point was the high priest on the Day of Atonement and his going in to make offering for the nation. So they're still a little tied to this system. The next contrast was our contrast of covenants. And here we saw the Mosaic covenant versus the new covenant. The old Mosaic covenant was built and and something that was so much inferior to the heavenly ministry. That old bilateral covenant which was associated with that earthly ministry was its biggest problem was the required obedience of the people. That alone was a problem, as well as there are others, as we have discussed and will continue today. However, the unilateral heavenly covenant that was all of God, no one could argue that it was far superior. We'll return briefly again today to examine this new covenant as occurs in our text. The third contrast was that of the tabernacles. Here, the Mosaic tabernacle was compared to the heavenly tabernacle. The weakness of the earthly tabernacle was immediately evident, although it was splendid in its gold-covered wood and its golden fixtures and all of the appointments. It was still a tent of skins in the sand, one that was collapsible and movable. But there, there was something completely different about the heavenly tabernacle from which this model in the sand was built. And the reality was that it was far superior. It was and is an eternal tabernacle. And it was and is where Christ is reigning in his heavenly ministry. So the contrast built and with them the undeniable logical choice of the heavenly and divine components versus the earthly. Our fourth contrast took us a step further, built yet more as we talked about the contrast of the blood. 
The contrast of the blood of animals versus the blood of Jesus. Just the difference between the blood of animals and humans immediately becomes apparent. That there is a superiority as we understand that there is a superiority in creation as God has revealed it in Genesis of man over the animals. Despite what anyone might say, we're not the same. God has made us as his highest creation. Not deservedly so, but actually so. So with that distinction, we see that not only is it just the blood of animals versus man, but we're talking about the blood of Christ. We're talking about the blood of the Son of God. What could compare to that? No true comparison exists. This would be like Cottage Hill Academy taking on the New England Patriots. No, I'm not a Patriots fan, but avoided a couple of the obvious local choices because I'm attempting that neutrality, which is so difficult in this wonderful part of the world. Or maybe like the Braves taking on the Dodgers. Just see if you're paying attention. Thank you. But the contrast of blood, it was an overwhelming contrast. It got even more so with the fifth contrast of the sacrifices. Similar to the fourth contrast of blood, only not dealing just with the element of blood, but now looking at the overall picture of the sacrifice. Considering those animals that had to be drug in as they heard other animals before them being killed and they would hear the squeals and the horrors of those animals as their throats were being slit. Just brutal scenes. But not so with Christ. Jesus willingly went to the cross, knowing full well what lied before him. And the, and the building up of that first comparison of ministries is further established and built upon as we see because the Lord's time at the cross, his final sacrifice, was the ultimate fulfillment of his ministry on earth. And now we come to the sixth contrast. The contrast of the forgiveness of sins. The contrast of the forgiveness of sins. We've already seen that the only cleansing that the animal sacrifices could offer was that superficial cleansing, that ritual cleansing from elements like the washing of hands or breaking food rituals. So it was, it was not a, a deep cleansing or a, a true removal. And it is from this point that we move formally to this sixth contrast of the forgiveness of sins. As we touched on in our last message, this comparison begins with the bad news, good news comparison, as we also saw in our previous contrast. Specifically, the bad news of verse 11 was this awful awareness. Not only was the animal sacrifice only a superficial cleansing, but it says in verse 11 that they can never take away sins. This awful awareness from verse 11 was representative of the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. That's why the text says at the beginning of verse 11, every priest. It's not the high priest that we've been focusing on throughout this section of Hebrews. Now he broadens it to speak of all of the priests, all of the sacrifices that would be offered, not just on the Day of Atonement. Literally millions of sacrifices. And in all of that blood, in all of that activity and gore, not a single sin removed. 
Nothing had been forgiven. This was very bad news indeed. This was an awful awareness. Micah chapter 6 and verse 6 carries this concept from an Old Testament perspective. And I want to review that with you. If you turn with me to the book of Micah, you'll find Micah after Jonah and before Nahum in the end of your Old Testament. Page 928, if you're using our Pew Bible. Let me give you just a quick hint. Sometimes it's hard to remember the order of the minor prophets. So let me give you four quick keys to help you remember the order of the minor prophets. We've talked about the same type of mnemonics that help us remember the order of the epistles. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops, right? Works. There are some others I've heard, but that's what we're looking for. Well, we have a similar way that we can remember the minor prophets. And these four keys will help us. I hope they'll help you. The, the first key is to remember the first and the last. Okay, the first minor prophet is Hosea. The last is the great Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi. So first and last, Hosea and Malachi. That's our first key. That gets us started down this road. And then the second key is the alphabet. We all know the alphabet. That sounds simple. Well, this alphabet has three parts. Three parts to this key. First part is when we find out that J comes after H. Now, to understand how this works, we have to remember that there is a minor prophet that begins with J. Well, most of us remember Jonah, so this isn't too hard. Okay, so when we think of this, we, we find H-I-J, so J comes after H. Hosea is the first book. J comes following that. Well, now we know there are two J's. There's Joel and Jonah. Again, we go back to our alphabetical rule. Joel comes before Jonah. Okay, so there is our second key. The third key, and we'll come back to the other parts of the alphabet in a second, the third key is the J and J sandwich. Okay, the J and J sandwich. Jonah and Joel, or Joel and Jonah, are, are sandwiching the two consonantal prophets, Amos and Obadiah. And we know that, again, with our alphabetical rule, A, A comes before O. So we have Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. All right, well, we're really making some great progress here, believe it or not. So far, we have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and our last book, Malachi. That's six. We're halfway there. Moving ahead, we come back to that second alphabetical key employed for the first books. And now we remember the two books, M and N. There are Micah and Nahum. Where do they go? Well, M's before N. And they follow H and J. So we have Micah. Nahum. Now, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and our last, still our wonderful Malachi. The fourth and final key is HZ. HZ. I don't know how you remember it. You just do because they don't go together, so that's perfect. Bring them together. It's the HZ key. The last four books go HZ, HZ. And again, we return to our alphabet as we consider them. And we see that Habakkuk comes before Haggai, but they're HZ, so we go Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. So these four keys will help you understand the order of the books. 
Hosea Malachi first and last, the J sandwich with A and E in between, a, the MN, Micah, Nahum, HZ pairs, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and now we can roll right through them. And if you're not in Awana, for all you kids in Awana, it's so much easier for you to memorize, so keep that up. But there we have it, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. Right? You're ready. Quiz will be in five minutes. Be ready. No, I hope that was helpful. It is nice to be able to dive through the Old Testament and find where we're going. So let's do go back to Micah chapter 6 and verse 6. Micah 6 and 6. Follow along as I read. As we think about the aspects of, of the, the lack of forgiveness that the Old Testament sacrifice caused. Micah 6 and verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Hosea begins and he questions himself and says, What is it that I am to bring before the Lord? What is it that God will be pleased with? Is it that I am to come with these burnt offerings? Are they the yearling calves? Is this what God is really wanting? He immediately recognizes a weakness in this system. How is it that the sacrifice of animals can cover my sin? He knows that it cannot. He continues in verse 7. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He knows that the animal sacrifices aren't enough and they multiply thousands of animals, ten thousands of rivers of oil. Keep in mind the peace offering, you brought oil and flour. So all of these sacrifices brought forward. Or even that he would offer his son. Would that cover his sins? And he recognizes that nothing is working. And then in verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Micah understood that what God is looking for, what is good in his sight and what God requires is justice and kindness and humility, tenderness before God. These are the things that God wants. A broken and contrite heart. These are the things that please God. Not our acts, but that we are submissive and that we are humble before Him. Oh, Micah knew full well. He recognized the value of the sacrificial system, namely that it is not what God wanted. The system was designed to bring men to their knees, but instead they legalistically adhered to this system. And the system brought no forgiveness, beloved. This is the same today. Nothing has changed in God's plan. God still requires of us that broken and contrite heart, which was clear even in the Old Testament times. Turn back again with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 and forward. So verses 12 to 14 then take us to the astonishing achievement. Huge transition at the beginning of verse 12. But he, 
That is but Jesus Christ. Literally, in the original language, it is but this one. He purposely creates this tension by not mentioning Christ. By saying, who is this one? This one that is Jesus. The one having offered one sacrifice for sins. The singular nature of Christ and of his sacrifice being dramatically emphasized. This one having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time. Verse 13 tells us that the same one who sat down at the right hand of the Father in verse 12 is also waiting for his enemies to become a footstool for his feet. That is, waiting for the consummation of the ages. Then in verse 14, this singularity and oneness continues to be emphasized, but this one having offered one sacrifice for all time, the same one waiting for the consummation has by one offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is incredible. Let me repeat that as a summary of these three verses. This one having offered one sacrifice for all time, the same one waiting for the consummation has by one offering perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Four different references to the numeral one Two different references to once for all time in these verses. This is a whole picture of the sixth contrast of the offerings for sin. Verse 11, an awful awareness. There is no forgiveness. Now, but this one, but this Jesus Christ, he has brought full forgiveness for all sins. Incredible for us to recognize that. He has perfected those who are sanctified, literally those who are being sanctified. Because not only is Jesus the one doing all these one things for all time, but he is also the one assisting in the sanctification. And that sanctification, beloved, is resulting in your perfection. There's a mountain of theology behind this, and we covered much of this in our last message, so I'd refer you to that from two weeks ago to refresh yourselves. But this is so clearly an amazing achievement. But the amazement of this totally awesome action continues in our third point. And I've titled our third point, An Awakening Abolishment. An Awakening Abolishment. In verses 15 to 17. In verse 15, the agent of our awakening abolishment is revealed. Look at verse 15 with me. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying. So it is the Holy Spirit that, that now testifies. We've just seen all of the achievements of Christ. The full complexity, the full fulfillment of the atonement, full propitiation for sin. And now we see the Holy Spirit testifying to that astonishing achievement. To testify here means to bear witness. The, the two most common translations of this Greek root of this verb. <clears throat> the verb is something that we're familiar with in English. The Greek word is martyria. 
it's where we get our English word martyr. We see that, that parallel sound. Martyria is martyr. A martyr is one who, kill, who is killed or suffers persecution for the proclamation of his faith. The suffering or death being incurred by the hands of another persecutor. That's why when we think of the, the horrors of these suicide bombers, they are not martyrs, they are murderers. Because they are not suffering at the hands of others, but they are causing their own suffering and death. So here the Holy Spirit is bearing witness, proclaiming the most important thing. Anyone who would suffer martyrdom is proclaiming that which is most important to his heart. This is what the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is bringing forth. He is bearing witness. John Owen notes that the necessity of including the Holy Spirit is to authenticate this message. Each of the six contrasts of Jesus' superiority has escalated, making it more and more difficult to refute and building more and more on the previous contrasts. Now, this sixth contrast makes the old system essentially worthless in its efficacy to actually take away sins. This would bring great objection to the Jewish mind. Now, we know that the Jews were not those who had a problem objecting. We know that they were very vocal in their objection against Paul as they sought to stone him and followed him hundreds of miles to pursue that. We see Paul write about the Judaizers in many of his epistles. So it's not that Jewish opposition was foreign. And now we see here Paul writing about this same component. Owen, by the way, in his 11 volumes, agreeing with that authorship. But here we find out that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to these Jewish people who now have been told that your system, all that you have been doing for the last couple thousand years is worthless. Everything you've done has removed zero sin. And you can imagine the difficulty it would be to receive that. So the Holy Spirit is again referenced as he has been before. Back in Hebrews 3.7, we saw the same. Back in Hebrews 9.8, we saw the Holy Spirit brought as authentication, brought as authorial confirmation. The Holy Spirit is the perfect reference for he is the enlightenment behind the authors of Scripture. A verse that's familiar to us and so, so important is 2 Peter chapter 1 in verses 20 to 21. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 and 20, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter is telling us that the scripture which we hold in our hands, although written by men, is not the act of men. That it is the act of the Spirit of God moving through them to bring us this perfect and inerrant word. For no men could do such a work. This is a vital verse for us to know. 2 Peter 1.20 and also 2 Timothy 3.16 are the foundational pivot of our understanding of the inerrancy and authenticity of God's word. 
They establish for us that this word is the very breathed out word of God. And so it is that the Holy Spirit is called as the very one to testify of the truths just stated about Christ once for all, one sacrifice by the only one who could accomplish this feat. It's further appropriate that the Holy Spirit is brought to testify of this glorious truth as this happens to be exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. Do you remember that? Back in John chapter 14 and verse 26, it says there in John 14 and 26, the Lord said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is further fulfillment as the Holy Spirit brings back to their memory. John 15 and 26 also says something similar. John 15, 26 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So we've just heard of Jesus' great work of bringing the atonement and completing it once for all, and now the Spirit comes to testify. And at the end of verse 15, we transition to the statement confirming this astonishing achievement just addressed in Christ's work. And in order to provide an indispensable argument, he takes the Jewish church back to their roots. He doesn't rely upon 2 Peter. He doesn't rely upon 2 Timothy 3.16 or on John. He takes them back to their scriptures, to their word, back to the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit's confirmation through the Old Testament scriptures, and specifically back to the New Covenant language in Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 16 for that quote. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds... I will remember no more. To fully grasp this text, I want to take you back to that Old Testament verse and review it. So turn back with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. As we think about this great text in Jeremiah and all that he is brought forward to, to us, we understand the importance of the Holy Spirit taking them back to what they knew, back to the beginning. You'll find that text, by the way, on page 789, Jeremiah 31, 31, if you're using a pew Bible. The new covenant proclaimed in two major prophets, this new covenant, both in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I want to look at them both, but I want to start in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Follow along, if you would, as I read this text. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. These verses, this new covenant, this is a summation of the six contrasts of Hebrews. The, from the earthly ministry all the way through the covenants, the tabernacles, the blood, the sacrifices, and into the forgiveness of sins. God begins through Jeremiah and says, it's not going to be like the old system. That which they totally failed on. Even though I was their husband. Even though I was the one there with them. And we often think of that role of God with the nation of Israel. And, and I have found myself, and perhaps you have as well, questioning how could they blow it? Look at all that they saw. The Shekinah glory, the cloud leading them by day, the cloud of fire by night, the parting of the Red Sea, all of the miracles in Egypt, the water from the rock, the manna, the quail, and on and on. They saw God at every turn. Their clothes did not wear out. Their shoes did not wear out. And yet, they continued to forsake God. And I wonder, how can that be? But I understand how that can be, and so do you, don't we, beloved? Or we can do the same thing. But God says, not now. Not now will it be your responsibility. This is my covenant which I will make. And I will write my law upon their heart. And I will put it into their mind. And I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. What an amazing promise and blessing that we have in this. What incredible truth that he is bringing from the Old Testament scriptures to remind them now of the superiority of this one, this Jesus Christ, who has done all things for them and the system which they must now leave behind and turn to the work of their Lord. Turn ahead with me if you would. Let's look at the next reading of this in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 25, page 865 there. Ezekiel restates the new covenant for us, but it's not just a restatement. He brings some additional color and light that I really want you to see because it is just so amazing to recognize. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. And he says there in verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Beloved, this new covenant that the author is writing to the Hebrews, he has written it to us. This is our love story with God. This is not just for the Jewish believers of the 
church 2,000 years ago in Rome. This is our covenant. We are those who have been grafted in to this covenant. It is a beautiful text for our consideration as we recognize what God has done, that he has cleansed us. No animal blood could do so. He has sprinkled clean water on us and we are clean. I'm reminded of the beautiful picture of the Lord at the Last Supper. As he goes and he removes his garments and he girds himself with a towel and begins to go about to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter, oh Peter, no Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter says, well then Lord, all of me, wash all of me. The Lord says, no, Peter, only part of you need cleansing. What a, what a beautiful picture of the cleansing work of Christ. And beloved, each of us, as surely as those apostles, our feet have been washed. We have been sprinkled with that clean water. We are those whom God has taken our hard heart. Did any of you ever have a hard heart? I lived 37 years with a heart harder than granite. And God removed it from me and gave me a heart of flesh, broke my heart, showed me my offense against my beautiful wife and children, showed me my horrific offense against him. Have you seen that offense, beloved? Do you know that new heart? Does it break over your sin? That's what he has put into us. That's what he has written on our minds. That is what he has placed in us with his spirit who dwells within our body, who convicts us of our sin, who wars against the flesh of the darkness that we are. Incredible for us to understand this. And then advancing down a few verses with me to verse 33, if you would, in Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, on that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and all the waste places to be rebuilt when he cleanses us from our iniquities. Both of these great chapters of Jeremiah and Ezekiel reference the forgiveness of Hebrews 10, 17. You can turn back to Hebrews with me if you would. Hebrews 10 and 17. How powerful is it to consider God's forgiveness? I love some of the scriptures that show us how big God's forgiveness is. Do you not love Psalm 103.12 For as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. What a glorious picture to our weak human minds in the massive conception of God. How far can you go from the east to the west in this universe? A lot farther than we can calculate. And never do we get as far away from the east or the west as God has taken our sins from us. What a beautiful picture. They're gone. Micah 7:19, another glorious text. Micah writes in the 7th chapter in verse 19, "He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot." How big is God's foot? How much does it hide our sin? Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Oh yes, today we can go around with our sophisticated devices and we can measure the depth of the ocean floor and we can see the, the mountain ranges and the trenches that are there and that it goes down 10,000 feet. For these people, the depth 
of the ocean was unfathomable. And you know, when we get right down to it, we may be able to measure that, but how does it feel when you go underwater? Maybe some of you are great swimmers. I, I, being from Montana, I'm a land lover. And you know, I, I love going to the Gulf and I love going out in the ocean. I love how clear it is and I go down. You know, but I get about a foot underwater and I start getting a little nervous. I got certified to scuba dive. Imagine that. I got a kid from Montana getting certified to scuba dive. And you get down about 20 feet, and it's still pretty good visibility, and 30 and 40, it's getting a little cloudy. And you get to about 60 to 80, and it's amazing how the respiration comes up. I can go through a tank of air in about 15 minutes. It's supposed to last like an hour, I guess, but not for me. Well, how was it? How did it feel to have those sins removed to the depth of the deepest ocean? They're gone. <laughs> There is no consideration of them. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. This is truly an awakening abolishment. It is the work of the Spirit of God which brings the awakening to the work of Christ in his perfected once-for-all atonement. What an incredible picture. How can one respond to this? I think the scripture says it best, as it usually does. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. Great study for you, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, where it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. What an amazing picture for us. God has purchased us. His spirit dwelling in us. Exactly what we've just read in the new covenant. This is the focus of the great commandment. Now we often talk about the great commission. And so we should. The great commandment parallel with it from Mark 12 and verse 30 says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is our response. Loving God with all that we are, recognizing that we are not our own, that we serve the one who has bought us and made us and redeemed us. These are the proper responses to Christ's once-for-all atoning work in which our sins are forgiven and forgotten. This is an awakening abolishment. The Spirit coming and removing, showing for all time what Christ has done in taking away our sins. And as phenomenal, phenomenal as this is, our fourth point is the capstone of this section. And the pinnacle of the main section of Hebrews, I've called our fourth point an astounding absolution. An astounding absolution in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. Our idea for an astounding absolution lies in the word forgiveness. The word is translated in some of our older English versions as remission, which is a good translation. But another excellent rendering is to absolve. To absolve. It's one of those words that the Catholic Church has hijacked and taken to a wrong place. 
But the word absolve and absolution is a good word. It means to remove for all time any connection. If you are absolved of something, it means that there is no connection to any past effect. So everything in your past has been taken out of the picture. It means as well that there is no current guilt. The guilt is gone for those things for which you have been absolved. And there is no future punishment. Past, present, and future gone, forgiven, cleansed, seen as righteous by God. It's the same impact of verse 17. The sins are no longer, remember, beloved, only God can do this. As humans, we are commanded to forgive one another. And the Lord tells us that if we do not forgive one another, he will not forgive us. So it is not a minor detail to forgive one another. But to forget, only God can forget. Only he is able to forgive and to forget. And that's exactly what he is telling us in this word. This is the astounding absolution. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The astounding component is the final clause of verse 18. There is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any value in any old covenant sacrifice. None of the sacrificial system with respect to its minor superficial cleansing. There is no other way. The point is that for the Hebrew believer, they can no longer hold to any conception of going back to the old covenant system in Judaism. With the revelation of the finished work of Christ on the cross, this is a dead system. A system in which the sacrifices are now contrary to God and what he has revealed. These sacrifices are sacrilegious in the true sense of the word. They are hypocritical and they are heretical when they are practiced with any thought of forgiveness of sin. And it is not just the Jewish believer, but it is any sacrificial system. Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the mass, where it is referred to as a supposed unbloody re-sacrifice of Christ, is completely contrary to this verse and to God's word about what Christ has done. We've discussed that, and again, I, I call your attention to that uh, red track which uh, we have back on our table, and I keep with me in several locations, and you should too. Pick some up. They are an excellent tool, and you can go back to that message that we shared uh, Wednesday night, three weeks ago, to discuss and understand the nuances of how the Roman Catholic Church has perverted the faith once for all handed down to the saints. This astounding absolution is all a function of Christ's full expiation of sins. No longer is there any offering than the blood of Christ. It is finished. Every sin prior to Christ's atoning work looked forward to that time on the cross. Every sin after looks back to what Christ has done and his propitiation. My friend, is this where you look? We can turn to no other fount 
There is no other cleansing other than the offering of Jesus Christ. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse and wash and forgive our sins. And we eat sin. We sin every day. And the message must be on our hearts and must be on our minds as well. If you don't continue to reflect upon Christ's work on the cross as you recognize your own sin, which occurs on a daily and almost continuous basis, then where is your part in Christ? Beloved, if this truth is not running through your mind each day, then you are falling short. For we are to keep short accounts of our sin before this just and holy God. For we know that he will return and we know not when. And when he does, we want to be in a place, as Paul tells the Thessalonian church, where we're not caught sleeping as the thief might come in the night. No, we need to be ready for that return. Today must be that day. If you have not recognized your sin, if you have not stopped to realize that your sin separates you from all time from a holy God, and that only by receiving Christ's forgiveness can you be cleansed. Today is that day. Don't go another moment. Don't risk that you have lots of time to consider it. Don't think that you will be the thief on the cross that can wait until that deathbed conversion. Because you do not know when that is coming. Only God knows the appointed hour that each of us have. Now must be when you cry out to God to save you, where you plead for his forgiveness. If you have not yet, get on your knees when you get to your home after you leave here. Get on the knees of your heart right now and cry out to God to open your eyes to what he has shown us in this amazing text of Jesus Christ's forgiveness. Because, beloved, you know, just as this was the final impact for the Jewish church about how they must not turn back, about how they must abandon their system, we too can be tempted to turn back, can we not? When the difficulties arise in our lives, when emotional turmoil strikes us, and we are shook to our core, and our relationships in which we have trusted on this earth fall apart, we are tempted to turn. When financial crisis comes and we see no way out, we are tempted to turn. When our physical life seems to be immediately evaporating because the horrors of diseases and the effects of sin on this earth are ravaging our bodies, we can be tempted to turn back. Or when our spiritual world is shaken and we know not our foundation, these attacks can make us think about giving up, can they not? These can make us think about turning back. But my beloved brothers and sisters, you cannot turn back. There is nothing and there is nowhere to turn. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ to which we can turn and to which we must cling because it alone is the power. These former systems, our old lives, they are dead and worse yet they lead to eternal death and eternal separation from God. The final contrast is a message of cleansing to remind us never to turn back, to remind us of the glory of what Jesus has done, the beauty and the joy of forgiveness. 
You know, there's, there's nothing like, and, and I know y'all think I'm a little crazy for loving the, the heat and loving the humidity. I love going out to mow the yard, you know, and I'm just sopping wet in a nasty mess. And Karen's like, ew, don't come near me. You know, and then you get in the shower and you wash and you're clean and it just feels great. How much more the eternal cleansing of Christ? How much more is the filth of our sin than that which we can incur by rolling in the dirt or mowing the lawn? And yet he cleanses that completely. What a glorious provision he has given to us. This is that final contrast so that we will stay the course. When we stop and realize our sin, when we confess it and leave it at the foot of the cross, we ought be rejoicing, not grieving. Christ has paid the price. It is covered. You need not be ashamed. You need not be burdened by that guilt. It has been forgiven. It has been abolished. Past, present, and future, it is gone. Leave it in the past. Bury it to the depth of the deepest ocean. Remove it as far as the east and those, as the west. And pursue Christ. Follow hard after him. We have to rejoice in the debt that is paid in full. That is paid for us. And there is therefore now, now beloved, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are released we are free and clean and ready to reveal the most glorious message ever because he's not just given it to us so that we would know it, but so that we would pour it out to others. And more than this, Jesus is doing it. The positional sanctification of our being justified and seen righteous in God is yours now. Now and here today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God sees you as holy and righteous. And the progressive sanctification, which Paul tells us in Philippians, that we are to work out with fear and trembling, that work Christ is also participating in, as verse 14 tells us, that we are being sanctified by Jesus, that we are being perfected. He will get it done. Is there anything Jesus has ever set his mind to that hasn't happened? No. And if you're not going to be the first. So hold fast. Strive hard. Recognize what God has called us to. He is doing it all. That wonderful process. He is bringing us to perfection. So, beloved, the question becomes, how then shall we live? As Francis Schaeffer so beautifully put it, we must live as blood-bought believers. We must live as vessels of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We must live such that our entire hearts, our entire souls, our inanimate being, our entire mind and mental faculties and all of our strength are focused on God. It's all for Him. He is the only one that is worthy. He is the only one for whom we can live. All of our love must be for our Savior. The superlatives of this contrast blow off the page 
of this totally awesome action. Because this is all the work of our totally awesome God. The one and only God eternally existing and working in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and revealed to us in all in this text. Each revealed in these glorious contrasts the God accomplishing all things, the God indwelling all believers, and the God who is perfecting all his children. And the God who alone is to be fully praised. May we praise him more because of this and live in light of this great truth.